everyone, and hello humans. This is Not A Robot's Marvel Comics Weekly Review Podcast. My name is Kirk. My outfit for the Hellfire Gala will be made entirely of Wade Wilson's hair. And this week, I am joined by my co-host, Brandon. Hello, everyone. Uh, I, unfortunately, do not have such a fabulous outfit for the Hellfire Gala, but I will be there and present for all of it. <laughs> this week, we are reviewing with full reviews on Spider-Man Curse of the Man-Thing, with a double feature on X-Men Curse of the Man-Thing. Then we've got Marauders number 20, Immortal Hulk 46, Heroes Reborn number 1, Amazing Spider-Man 65, Way of X number one, and Beta Ray Bill number two, followed by lightning reviews of America Chavez number three, Sword number five, Hellions eleven, Eternals number four, Champions number six, and Black Knight Curse of the Ebony Blade number two. Before we get going, I just want to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who help out with a dollar or more a month, and thank you to our listeners too. Like, download, and share our episodes so we get more listeners and can bring you more content. You can get access to our Patreon and the rest of the Not A Robot podcast shows at notarobotpodcasts.com. You can catch us on Twitter at notarobotcomics, and you can send show mail to notarobotcomics at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Kirk Hopko. And with that, let's let's talk about the news. Brandon, has anything hit your news feed this week? Um, I mean, nothing, you know, nothing too crazy. Um, I, I, I've kind of been out of it for the past couple of weeks just cause I, I really had my head down and, and focused with finals for anyone who listens to the DC podcast. You've already heard me ramble on about that, but I did notice, um, that there was an announcement that there is uh, development on a new Hulk movie, which, um, we kind of talked about briefly at the end of the DC review show, even though we're, we're a DC comics podcast. Um, and I, I was just kind of talking about how it would be really interesting to see them go, uh, for a horror angle if they were going to do a new solo, um, Hulk movie. I don't know how you felt about that. I think that would be super cool. I, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in where they would take a new Hulk movie. Obviously mm-hmm. the current iteration of Hulk would lend itself to the traditional Marvel movie formula you know, yeah. a slightly goofy with slightly serious overtones. Um, especially depending on what they do with the Hulk. If if the Hulk movie is Banner's Hulk mm. and not anything following up uh, either the, the She-Hulk Disney Plus series that's coming next year or whatever may come after that. Uh, heck, a Hulk TV series could even focus on an entirely new Hulk uh, we yeah. we got uh, maybe a totally awesome Hulk, wink wink. <laughs> right, we did get her mom or her mom, his mom guest appearing in Age of Ultron all yeah. those years ago. So we could we could get Amadeus Cho in here. He could get a movie. Yeah, that's right. But if they went a horror movie direction, I think that would be really cool. I wouldn't expect them to go that way. Yeah, I think I, I guess just for me because um, you know one of. One of the most interesting titles I would say at Marvel right now is Immortal Hulk, and um, I guess I had never really thought of Hulk as being a, a horror-themed character until I started reading that book, and it seems like kind of an obvious comparison given how much you know Hulk and and something like Jekyll and Hyde kind of go together. Um, but it would just be really interesting to see them kind of explore that 
in a in a movie um and, and maybe really go into like the psychological stuff of having all these different hulk personalities although again i don't even know if that's i don't even know that's a thing in the mcu i mean because it, it seems like there's really just banner and then the hulk persona and um it doesn't seem like there's like a, a bunch of different personalities like there is in the comics but um yeah we'll see what about what about you kurt yeah um no, sorry. I think for the Hulk, they definitely, they kind of, you know, they teased that like Planet Hulk type stuff was going on after he left in Age of Ultron and Ragnarok finally reintroduced him. But really, there's a few years there, and then there's the whole years between Infinity War and Endgame where Banner was alive that they could definitely work in those blank years where Banner wasn't paying attention and could be surprised to know that oh, wait, he was Joe Fix-It for a bit there. Yeah. Um, in other news, I believe this past week is when we also got the Marvel Cinematic Universe title reveals for Black Panther 2 and uh, the sequel to the Captain Marvel movie, which is now retitled The Marvels. Mm-hmm. And Black Panther 2 is now Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Yeah, so. I saw that. Those are both exciting news. It was good to finally hear a bit more on those, even if it's just a little bit. And yeah, I would I would definitely say there's a lot of, of um, interesting stuff in the works. And uh, I mean, I'm 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 always hopeful that a, a Fantastic Four movie will be good, but I don't know. History has not been kind to the Fantastic Four movies. Yeah, tragically, you are right, and. I have I have gone on record that I am not the biggest advocate for the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife likes to tease me that if I could like circle Reed Richards' name in my notebook and then cross it out violently, like that that's that's, <laughs> oh. that's who I would be in the Marvel oh. universe. Oh, you're you're killing me over here. <laughs> no, me me and Reed go way back. We just don't go way back positively all the time. Oh God, <laughs> no, I am. Uh... I'm a, I'm a really, really big Fantastic Four fan, and I think, I don't know, I mean, I think on the one hand it has to do with a lot of the stories, because there are just a, a plethora of great Fantastic Four stories out there. Absolutely. Um, but it's it's also kind of personal for me, because Fantastic Four was kind of one of the first Marvel comics I ever got to read. Like, I remember back when I was like nine or ten, my mom would take me to the Barnes & Noble near where we lived, and they had the the little you know comic section and uh one of the first like marvel books i ever got was a uh, marvel masterworks of fantastic four and um it was the same uh marvel masterworks that i got stan lee to sign at my first comic book convention in oh, 2012 awesome. and so i was just like I, I just have like this really long history with the four and like just reading stories like throughout my life so i don't know like i i have a soft spot for the whole team even even reed who i think <laughs> kind of can get a bad rap but really that just depends on who's writing him because like sometimes you'll have him and he's just a total asshole um and you're just like why would anyone ever want to be near him and then you know sometimes you'll have him where it's like you know john byrne or jonathan hickman or uh some other writers who or mark wade uh, particularly who kind of make him a bit more sympathetic which i always appreciate because um, I, I do feel like reed can be 
very misunderstood at times where he might seem like standoffish and you know kind of a jerk but he's, he still loves his family and would do anything to protect them but uh yeah i i feel like my love of the fantastic four probably mirrors your love of the the champions if if <laughs> i've if i if i've read you correctly <laughs> My love for the champions is less long running. Uh, <laughs> if I had to pick someone or that, like you know, that I read for years and years growing up, you know, mm-hmm. I am just sort of tried and true a classic Avengers, X Men oh, yeah. kid, and Spider Man. Of course, I think everyone, yeah, yeah, every kid's a Spider Man kid. Yeah, it's hard to not be. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was the other thing is I didn't read a lot of Fantastic Four until probably like two thousand five. Okay, okay. And for anyone who is paying attention to what I was reading of Reed Richards in 2005, yeah, it was not his best look. <laughs> yeah, no. Especially, yeah, like right before, right before Civil War and then like right after Civil War is like not a good time. Yeah, and then moving on from that, you know, I was, I was in my teens, so I was like, ah, the Fantastic Four sucks. And then I didn't really look at them again until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. And like now I'll t- totally go on record that the Fantastic Four is absolutely fine. I, I actually do enjoy mm-hmm. the Fantastic Four. And I have a, I, I have more fun with my uh, joking sort of dislike of Reed. Yeah. Because I know if he was a person, we would not be friends. <laughs> uh. But everything else aside... Uh, it's it's fun, and I do look forward to seeing really a depiction of Doctor Doom on any screen. Oh yeah, because Doom yeah. is one of my favorite villains, and that is a reason why I have rekindled uh, any enjoyment I've had in the Fantastic Four. It's just because Doom is the best. Yeah, Doom is the absolute best. Um, and you know, I think I think especially it's it's funny to hear you say that about Reed um, because I think especially. Uh, Given how uh, the character of John Walker was portrayed in Falcon and Winter Soldier, I think if we were going to get any kind of Reed Richards, it would definitely be more sympathetic than some of the versions of Reed that we've seen in the past. Because I know, at least from my understanding of John Walker in the comics, they definitely toned him down for the show where he's not like, you know, as abrasive as as horrible as much of kind of a jerk like he's he still has that violent breakdown uh, at points throughout the series but he's not quite as as bad and you kind of you can feel a little bit sympathetic for him or at least i don't know maybe some people can i'm not sure but um i i feel like if we we're going to get any version of reed it would probably be more sympathetic just seeing how they've handled some characters i don't know what did you think yeah i i definitely agree on that that they they're it is likely they will do him more elegantly than the versions of Reed that I'm holding against him at this point, literally just for comedy. Like I really don't dislike, I'm just hard on Reed for, for fun. Uh, but the other piece there is I did read something online and I don't, I'm not uh, the voice who can weigh in on this properly, but someone showed some of those old panels where, Someone wrote that Reed self-diagnosed himself as on the uh, the Asperger's autism spectrum, hmm. and That's... this this piece this that I was reading was talking about how you know uh, 
children who are on the spectrum related a lot to characters like Drax, who were sort of not able to pick up on social tics and social cues. And if they wrote a well-informed from a place of like, you know, someone on the spectrum informing the writing, if they wrote read actually on the spectrum, you know, leaning into what he claimed to be in the comics when it was just a throwaway line, if we're going to be honest, but if they wrote someone who, you know, has the behaviors we associate with Reed sort of diving into his work at the expense of his relationships and things like that. Mm -hmm. If they interpreted that as someone on the spectrum properly, I could totally see it going to a very different place than the Reed I have read growing up. And I could, I this article made a good case for it and I could totally see, see a place for that in the MCU. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Please share share with me that article because I I think I know the comic you're talking about. I actually just I pulled my my copy of my trade off the shelf because um, when you said Asperger's, it kind of like you know like uh, uh, struck struck a bell in my head, um, and it reminded me of a, a Fantastic Four miniseries from I want to say like two thousand one or two thousand two. Um, by Grant Morrison, of all people, called Fantastic Four, One, Two, Three, Four, where um, Sue kind of makes this offhand comment about, um, you know, Reed's kind of uh, social ineptitude possibly being about Asperger's Syndrome. Um, and I can I could show you the panel um, once we're done recording, but um, it's, uh, I, th- I think that might be what you're talking about. And, and if that's the case, it would be interesting to see them try and explore that because I think there is a really interesting story that you could tell because you'll find that a lot of people do kind of suffer with that you know what we would call social awkwardness but for them it's just kind of a you know a normal sense of how they interact with people so um, yeah I definitely agree I think if with the right group of writers handling that story you could have something you know really really interesting and potentially really uh, impactful mm-hmm. yeah and because like media has had a couple of those sort of non-conforming genius type characters get really popular in the past decade. Well, we've got Dr. House, uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Sheldon from the big bang theory. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, Oh, and Sheldon probably. And in all of those cases, I believe, and I'm not sure on the BBC's Sherlock actually. So don't quote me on this one, Mm. but people have commented that some of the behaviors of both house and Sheldon were informed by ideas of Asperger's, but they never really consulted any people with Asperger's to properly guide that conversation. And they never committed to actually identifying the character as that disorder. Yeah. So I think having, you know, Reed be sort of this unrelatable genius that's very in line with Reed, but if they tie that into something, representative i think I, I would be really excited to see them go that direction with it mm-hmm. yeah no there i mean there is a uh uh there is one show recently i think it was called like the good doctor or something yes that, that one like was a, yeah that had a, a a kind of like a genius type doctor who you know kind of struggles from or is, is on the autism spectrum um and i i don't know what the reception to that series was in its portrayal of autism but um, yeah, no, I think, I think there's definitely an interesting case you could make 
um, for Reed Richards. But um, uh, any anything else? The last piece of news I have. This is unfortunately a bit too late for our viewers, but mm. the Marvel United, which is a board game, just closed up a very successful Kickstarter for their Marvel United X Men uh, board Ooh. game. Uh, so they are releasing an X-Men edition of the uh, already popular Marvel United board game. If you are not familiar with these board games, it is a uh, family-friendly, so it's very uh, very simple. Like, when we, I say family-friendly, I'm talking you can play it probably with a six- or seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, but it's a family-friendly board game where you play a team of superheroes working to thwart a supervillain uh, in a location or in a city made up of a couple different location cards that villain has a master plan and a couple different uh henchmen and uh plots that are going on in the city and each player takes turns moving their hero around the city and either working towards the stopping the master plan or working towards the day-to-day troubles of a hero like you'll put that there are thugs in some location or civilians in danger in another and you have to prioritize do we save those civilians now because we do have to save them eventually, or do I focus on punching Taskmaster? Yeah, that, that, that sounds really fun, though. It is, and the real highlight of the game is that it's it's a miniatures-based game, uh, mm. so it uses about two and a half, or about two inch tall uh, plastic miniatures, mm. and they are all uh, chibi style, so they're all <laughs> nice. big head, very chubby little cute versions of themselves i have the marvel version and the captain america and red skull minis always just crack me up because cap is just he looks like a really stoic chubby baby (laughs) yeah oh god but they're adorable Uh, and the x-men united just launched a massively successful kickstarter unlocked tons of stretch goals so those of us who backed it are getting a veritable horde of x-men miniatures yeah um including we got at the very end we unlocked the alpha flight so i'm i'm here for that oh, awesome but that's the last i had for news so yeah you... i'd uh I don't, I don't have anything else so so very cool very cool stuff uh coming out and uh and and also in the wind all right so let's move on to the reviews we are going to start with spider-man curse of the man thing Written by Steve Orlando with artist Marco Fila with Minkyu Jung. Color by Guru Effects and lettering by Clayton Cowles. This starts where Curse of the Man-Thing Avengers left off, where the Man-Thing has been converted into a weapon of global destruction by the Harrower. And we start with a handful of scenes of the Avengers in a variety of environments fighting off the Man-Thing's sort of corrupt plant body which is turned into flying drones and towers of devastation and is spreading those spores that the man thing has that if you are if you show fear they burst into flame and you right experience a lot of pain so the avengers are doing their work but this is spider-man curse of the man thing so we find that spider-man because this is happening everywhere new york is no exception Both Peter and Miles, as well as a brief appearance from Silk and Spider-Woman and even Madam Web, all show up and they are helping defend the world against the Man-Thing's invasion. Mm. And 
while they are working towards preventing that, it also cuts away that Steve Rogers, who we last discovered that had been sucked into the Man-Thing sort of psyche, because the man inside the Man-Thing, he ended up in this situation by trying to create Super Soldier Serum. Him and Cap exchange words, and he realizes that he... Or and he lets on that he needs the help of Dr. Kurt Connors. Uh, Cap brings Kurt to the Man-Thing, who gets absorbed into the Man-Thing sort of realm. And that is when the Man-Thing sort of reveals a bit more about his past. He reveals that he had to make a deal with a devil in order to solve the Super Soldier Serum. Mm. And then discovers that Kurt Connors is the lizard, which sets him off. And he uh, he freaks out that he too that the that the lizard is a monster just like him. That Kurt failed where he failed. Mm. And the culmination of this is that Spider Man goes and talks to uh, Ted. I believe his name is Ted Salas. Yeah, Ted Salas. Goes and talks to Ted in the Man-Thing realm. Because, and we get what is, I think, a really cool lizard moment where he believes that talking to the man in the monster is something that Spider-Man is good at. He mm-hmm. he acknowledges that as the lizard. Not just as Dr. Connors. And Spider-Man goes and addresses it. And uh, action ensues. And the Man-Thing reabsorbs his drones and re-enters the fray. But before that, he goes to a mysterious location to once again summon a devil who shows up at the very end, ready to uh, to make yet another deal with Ted Salas. Mm-hmm. This was a cool book. Yeah, I, um, I, I mean, for me at least, it was a little, I think weaker than the first chapter um Mm -hmm. because i remembered enjoying the first chapter a lot more than i had expected to it felt kind of like i remember i think i said something like villain of the week but it was it was fun in that way um and this one felt i think a little less focused at points just because it was introducing more people so now you have you know spider-man and kurt connors and Miles Morales and, and all of this other stuff and it just like it it felt like it lost me for a little bit but um, you know not not terrible by any means it just it felt a little felt a little cluttered at, at points I don't know how, how did you feel I completely agree yeah I well I think this is a cool book and I like what they're doing with the man thing because it's hard to in most of his appearance not just think of the man thing as either a weird plot device or a Swamp Thing ripoff. Yeah, yeah. But in this one, I I like the arc that they're telling, but I guess the, the pacing of this one felt really weird to me because it really was just the action scenes that we knew weren't going to be the turning point of any of the conflict in this book. Mm-hmm. When it shows... Captain Marvel and it shows Ghost Rider and it shows them struggling against the invasion of the man thing. We know that's not where the, 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 the twist is going to happen. Yeah. Um, this isn't the book 
where, you know, T'Challa just turns around and says, oh, wait a minute. This is the secret the whole time and solves the problem. This book is literally called Spider-Man Curse of the Man-Thing. So it sort of makes some of those feel a bit more like filler than they already are. Yeah, and I I think, at least for me, like Spider-Man does kind of get his moment towards the end where he's really talking to you know, Ted Salas and basically saying like, Hey, you know, I, I've, I've had moments where I've failed, but I took responsibility for it. And I can, I I basically was able to take that moment and turn my life around and do something with it. And I was like, that was a really good moment. I just wish it had come sooner or we had gotten more moments like that between Spider-Man and Swamp Thing, because I, I feel like what you may be getting at is that um, or kind of what you just said, really, is that is that it, for an issue called Spider-Man Curse of the Man thing, it felt like it wasn't really focused on Spider-Man as much. It kind of felt like Spider-Man and Avengers Part 2 Curse of the Man thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, one of, the, one of the notes I had on this book was that I thought it was weird that in this book we have three different characters kind of sucked into the Man thing reality like because that's really where the the i'm gonna call it this and it's gonna sound harsher than i mean it but that's really the only place where the interesting version of the plot is happening in this book yeah for sure but it's oh cap's in the realm they talk Mm -hmm. cap's out okay kurt's in the realm they talk oh kurt's out okay now pete's in the realm they talk like it was very jarring in that way that I think a lot of the revelation that he dropped on on Captain America could have been said to Kurt or could have been said to Spider-Man without needing to break it up so much. Yeah, or if they'd just like if they'd stuck with those moments instead of, you know, cutting it between moments of action with the Avengers or, you know, the Order of the Web or all these other people where it's like it's almost distracting you and it's kind of hard to focus on one. Um, just because like there's so much going on um, and that that was definitely something that I kind of was kind of a little frustrating for me where it's just like it felt almost overwhelming where there's all these different characters fighting off like the giant stalks and then you know you you basically have to juggle that and all the conversations that Ted has with the different characters whether that's Captain America or Spider-Man or um, Dr. Connors so yeah just it was it was a lot, um, and I, I didn't, I didn't hate it. I felt like it was, a, you know, it was a solid continuing chapter. It just it felt weaker than the opening one, and a little bit messier than I would have liked. I agree, and I especially since in my summary, like I'm now thinking about it, I didn't even really mention that there's the side plot of horde culture, horticulture talking to the harrower. Yeah. <laughs> like oh my god. Just as a continued dialogue from the first yeah. book, just sort of you know, where where do we didn't teach you to be evil this way. <laughs> yeah. But so for this book, I gave it a seven out of ten. Just it's decent and it's good, and I think it might've been colored that I really enjoyed the first part and I'm looking forward to it landing. Cause I want them to do something cool with the man thing. Yeah. So maybe my seven out of 10 is a little generous. It might be actually a 7.5 or a 6.5, but what did you think? Yeah, no, uh, 6.5 was what I ended up giving this issue just because like, again, I, I, 
I still find that the the man thing harrower plot to be interesting. Um, but it just like I like I said, it was just it was lost a little bit in this particular issue just because they had to juggle all the new additions as well as trying to continue the plot from the last issue and it just it didn't quite land for me. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was coy about the the demon uh, showing up at the end uh, because normally I wouldn't want to spoil that final panel twist, but we're going right into the next issue in this series. Yeah. Uh, so for those who uh, haven't read and are still listening on, the devil that he summoned to make the deal with ended up being magic mm-hmm. and continued on in X-Men Curse of the Man-Thing, which we'll jump right into, also from writer Steve Orlando, with Artist Andrea Bricardo, coloring by Guru FX and lettering by Clayton Cowles. Brandon, I'll hand this one over to you to summarize. All right, all right. I, we're just we're just we're just continuing on. So uh, right off, right from where Kirk left off, um, we basically catch up with uh, Man Thing, who is basically startled to find that the demon that he summoned was not the one that he expected. Um, but was magic instead and um, magic is basically basically trying to chide him into into action saying like well I'm not the person that you wanted but I'm here and and we better do something about it Um, and so meanwhile we kind of jump around to a bunch of different plots where um, the harrower is following up from the last issue where the two ladies of the horticulture had basically fallen into a mysterious portal um, in the water and um, the harrower is, is basically trying to find a way to breach through but she finds that um, you know she can't get in for some reason uh, which we'll find out later but uh, she knows that this portal kind of stems to greater worlds beyond ours which will help her in her plans as she basically wants to take her domination of the world uh, multiversal. Um, so we see a bunch of the heroes basically continue to fight off the stocks, um, given that the drones have stopped because Man-Thing has absorbed most of them. And um, from this point forward, they're basically just trying to contain the uh, toxic pollen that's in the air that's basically causing people to turn on fire if they feel fear. Um, so their strategy at this point is to basically try and show that they're winning. Um, but to basically show that they're winning so that they can contain people's fear so that they, you know, won't turn on fire, I guess. Um, meanwhile, on Krakoa, the Quiet Council is debating whether or not they should take action, um, given that uh, when a stock erupted on Krakoa, it was immediately stopped by Krakoa itself and, you know, didn't really pose any harm to them. Um, and in fact, we actually see it kind of lying limp among the shrubbery Krakoa, basically signaling that it really had no effect. Um, but the Quiet Council is, is kind of, you know, um, debating on whether or not to help the humans, and um, some of them feel that, you know, they don't really have an obligation to do so because, you know, they've kind of d- developed their own paradise and um, it really wouldn't do to help humanity. Um, but Storm is kind of the one who recommends um, that, you know, they should take action to help the humans, given that if all the humans were to die by the hands of the harrower and the man thing, it would have a, you know, an adverse effect on the mutants on Krakoa. Um, and so 
they decide to put it to a vote. Uh, but meanwhile, we catch up with uh, Magic and Man-Thing, and they kind of talk for a bit. Man-Thing absorbs Magic into his kind of special place where she is face-to-face with Dr. Ted Salas, and that's where um, Ted kind of reveals the real origins on the deal that he made with Belasco um, and basically how he used that to unlock the SO2 formula. And um, yeah, basically Ted and, and Magic just kind of talk about what further action to take moving forward. And um, that's where we, that's where we uh, get to meet uh, Magic's helpers, who she calls the Dark Riders, who will basically uh, kind of help uh, Ted take the fight to the Harrower um, and, you know, kind of get control back of, of his body and his actions. Um, and so they uh, catch up to the Harrower and they engage her in uh, battle for a little bit. And, um, you know, Ted is kind of able to uh, absorb the Harrower into his mind place. And that's where she's basically confronted by uh, the horrors of her past, which include not only the horticulture, but also, you know, kind of the tragic origin um, that that she was forced to deal with. Um, and we also get some brief cuts to, um, you know, the X-Men and, well, not the X-Men, but Storm and the rest of the Avengers kind of taking care of action. And Storm has, um, you know, helped uh, Thor and the others basically tried to contain the pollen and and basically redistribute it towards the sun um but uh meanwhile ted is still kind of psychologically terrorizing the harrower to basically just kind of you know break her down so that um eventually she'll feel enough fear so that she'll erupt on fire and uh basically lose uh control of all the mystic powers of the man thing um and that's basically where uh the harrower ends up where um they're able to kind of stop the fire pollens and stop the harrower and eventually she's confronted by uh the actual horticulture not just a vision and uh basically telling her that um some drastic action will be taken against her so i'm sure that's not good but um shortly after we see uh, a woman by the name of Jennifer Kale, who basically uses a, a summoning to bring the demon Belasco from hell um, to come face to face with the man thing, where Ted is finally getting to get his proper revenge on Belasco. And that's where our issue ends. So mm-hmm. I had a, I, I think I enjoyed this chapter more than I enjoyed the Spider-Man chapter just because it felt a little bit more focused on magic and um, Man-Thing. Um, and then finally when we you know get to see Man-Thing versus Hera where we really got to focus on that. So this one kind of did more of what I had wanted from the Spider-Man issue where you really just focus on the you know connection between two characters as opposed to like you know, a new group of people and they're constantly doing battle. And we still have, you know, seen transitions between the Avengers and all the other people trying to fight off the fire pollen. But um, this one definitely felt more focused and, and I think kind of helped 
the series overall stick its landing. Um, but how did you feel, Kurt? Yeah, I I like this better than the last one. I mm. I enjoy. I really enjoy Magic. Magic is a fun character, oh, yeah. um, especially when she is sort of taking over for Belasco's duties. Yeah. And the scenes with her and the Dark Riders, or what did she call them? They're her like monster self improvement squad or something. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, you know, featuring like Marrow and, uh, oh, I'm struggling on their names right now. I'll have to look them up. Mm. But that was a really fun bit to have. And the characterization was a little bit better. And, you know, Actually, spending time with Harrower was better in this book yeah. than it was in the last two. Because oh, in yeah. the last two, Harrower, Harrower was just this new character, or as far as I can tell, was new, mm. who shows up and says, I learned about plants from horticulture, except I'm a world-conquering terrorist. Yeah. And I'm going to blow everyone up. And then in the second book, horticulture was like, yo, don't do that. <laughs> and she was like, no, I'm I'm going to do that no. anyway. Yeah. And then in this book, they actually, like, gave some time to her other than just being, like, an environmental eco-terrorist, I guess, mm. is the best way to describe her. So I enjoyed it, and I enjoy sort of Ted Salas and Man-Thing regaining some level of agency. Yeah, yeah, that was nice. Because that's always been the thing for Man-Thing that makes him more of a plot element in most stories I read him in than actually a character. Mm. Is they always say, oh, Man-Thing is just a ball of instincts and reactions. So it, he kind of just lumbers around and maybe accidentally kills a super villain or something. Like, yeah, he's never part of deliberate action. Yeah, but this kind of gives him, you know, like you said, the the agency that he really needs, where he can actually, I mean, seemingly, yeah, he can get, you know, revenge on on Belasco and, and, you know, take action for himself, as opposed to just kind of lumbering around in a swamp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I did, I, I did like, though I think it's still a bit weird, because the way they haven't really, like, found an answer to this that I love since Krakoa, all of the global events that have been world-ending events, we've had Empire, King in Black, mm-hmm. and this isn't an event, but this was a world-ending event in the in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. But the Quiet Council is just sitting there like, I don't know, do we help people? We're kind of fine. As if, like, world-exterminating events... <laughs> I don't know, it just doesn't sit right with me that the X-Men have completely abandoned the notion of saving Earth. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I think at this point they're kind of like, or at least some of the members of the Quiet Council are, are just kind of like, you know, if it doesn't really affect us, what purpose would it serve? But I, I think, you know, there's still those, um, like, strike teams or, or small teams that can basically um you know be used to to combat an enemy if they need to like um when the when the kotadi 
kind of sent agents to Krakoa and also to the ruins of Genosha, they were still able to send people there. Um, and even during King in Black, um, when, you know, it was attacking, like, Manhattan, uh, Professor X and, and Magneto were still able to send, you know, like, Gene and Cyclops and Wolverine and Cable and other mutants to kind of help. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess it just depends, because that, that does seem a little weird that they're just kind of so blasé about it, or they're just like, eh, whatever, you know. If it's not affecting us, for what? Exactly, yeah. It's just, it's so weird to me because the inclusion of that scene, and maybe it is part of some long-term X strategy that they haven't quite laid out yet. Yeah. But if this X-Men tie-in really just focused on the fight, maybe the one shot of how Krakoa prevented the the stock from erupting, mm-hmm. and then focus more on the magic story arc... I would have been completely fine. But the fact that yeah. they had to show a scene of the Quiet Council being like, no, tut tut, why would we save the Earth? Yeah, exactly. That's where I'm like, okay, what long-term purpose does this serve other than just trying to convince me that the that the Krakow and Quiet Council are a bunch of, like, dweebs? <laughs> exactly. But... I did enjoy this issue. I gave X-Men Curse of the Man-Thing a 7.5 out of 10. Yeah, no, I uh, I also gave this one a 7.5 out of 10. I, I just I had a much more uh, enjoyable time with this one than the previous issue. Um, and I, I um, yeah, no, I, I found it to be kind of a, a, a solid series overall, even if it did have kind of a, a weak middle. Awesome. So next on our list, we've got Marauders Issue 20 by writer Jerry Duggan, artist Stefano Caselli, color by Edgar Delgado, and lettering by Corey Petit. Marauders number 20 is uh, almost like an anthology comic. This one tunes in leading up to the Hellfire Gala, where they are all aboard the ship and they are preparing for the Hellfire Gala, sort of... uh, Mentally, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, But they are preparing for it with a casual drink around the table and a send-off for Storm, who is leaving their crew. And they all share their best memories of time with Storm. And we get, you know, shots of Bishop... Uh, using literally just rain and claiming that Storm is watching to mm-hmm. get some soldiers to bow down. We get scenes of Storm assisting uh, Kate Pride when you know she was going through tough times, when she didn't know if she was even a mutant. Uh, we get shots of Storm just being a badass, throwing knives, and that's yeah. the other ongoing... I, I, I loved the sorry I didn't mean to no, cut, go ahead, please. cut in, but I, I loved the um I love the little side plot of the game that they have where they're just like how many knives does Storm have because that's like totally like I, I feel like that's totally a game that you would play if you were kind of like on friendly terms with Storm because she definitely like she's well known for her her use of knives and uh, they're <laughs> they're all just trying to figure it out right absolutely. In terms of major plot developments, though, this one doesn't 
cover a lot. It shows, you know, like I said, these memories of Storm. We get Bishop, Iceman, Pyro, all just sharing events from Storm's past. We even get Emma Frost touching briefly on the fact that losing to Storm sometimes even feels like the right decision. Yeah. And it, uh, the... The story literally just culminates with them preparing to go to the Hellfire Gala. Mm-hmm. There's a brief conversation with Shaw on board the deck of the ship. And that's it. I I don't think a lot happened in this book, but it was an enjoyable read. What did you think? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty quick read, at least for me. Um, and, I mean, I definitely liked the Marauder's... The Marauders is, I don't know what the plural for that would be, or the plural possessive, but I, I liked the team's reflection on, um, you know, Storm as a person and how it relates to each of them. And I, I really liked that it was able to highlight all these really, I guess, powerful moments. Um, even with, you know, someone like Callisto, who we don't really get to see the full moment, but you know that they have like such a rich past together that you really don't need to see like any particular moment. You just know it's there when it matters. Um, and it was kind of the same thing with Emma too, where it's like, you know, she's kind of talking about the last time I tried to mess with Storm's mind and look and see, you know, what was there. I, I paid the price for it. And that kind of tells you everything you need to know about Storm's relationship with Emma and vice versa. Um, so I think as kind of like a, a character reflection, it did a really great job of that. Um, but yeah, in terms of advancing the story, not a ton happened. We find out that uh, an old flame of Sebastian Shaw and member of the uh, Hellfire Club um, is likely to be resurrected soon. Um, but uh, yeah, outside of that, not not a ton. But I, I did have a, a solid job with. I did have a solid time with this issue, um, and so. I ended up giving it a 7.75 out of 10. Awesome. Yeah, I gave it a 7.5 out of 10 for just a pleasant uh, collection of stories. Mm. It was good to see Storm being awesome and to have that bit of camaraderie that we expect from a team like this. Yeah. Uh, A bit of a nonchalance. And I'm excited to see what's coming next for the Marauders because I think it's going to be some... Pretty serious stuff going on in the next few issues. Oh, yeah. Because I don't assume we're going to spend the entire month of June just everyone having a very pleasant party where nothing bad happens. Oh, yeah. No, there's definitely some stuff in the works for sure. And um, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention the cover um, just because I absolutely love this cover by Russell Dowderman. Mm -hmm. Um, Just such a great throwback to like the mid to late 80s X-Men where you've got, you know, Kitty Pryde and her um blue shadow cat outfit and storm in the punk outfit and like that's it's just it's just so great um and kind of that image of storm on the beach looking up with like these old shadows kind of looking over her and of the the good times and it it, I, i feel like it should be symbolic of the fact that even though there's so much change going on with krakoa or rather there's been so much change in you know i guess almost two years um, you know, things are, the X-Men are still the X-Men. Like, they still have their past. They still remember a lot. And I think this issue did a, a great job of 
kind of reminding us of that of like you know even even at their heart and soul they still have their their memories of who they are they're still the the x-men and the mutants that we love and uh love and know absolutely yeah i couldn't have said that better than better myself Mm. all right next on our list you know it if you've been reading it you probably love it and if you've been listening and if you've been listening to us you know we love it we have immortal hulk number 46 brought to us by the al ewing with pencils by joe bennett ink by rui jose and bellardino bravo and color by paul mountis and lettering by Corey petit for the summary i'm going to hand it over to brandon all right all right Every month there's a Mortal Hulk. It is a pleasure, so I love getting a chance to do this. But uh, this issue is actually uh, a little bit shorter. Not a ton happened, um, or at least not not a ton of major stuff. Um, So we catch up with uh, the Gamma Flight team, um, who are currently in Shadow Base right now, the the ruined Shadow Base. basically trying to find um, Doc Doc Sampson's body that had been uh, basically destroyed by the um, by the uh, gamma fused version of uh, Rick Jones and um, Del Fry and they basically realized that um, you know his body just isn't there um, and has gone missing and it's uh, Doc Samson as Sasquatch, or I guess Doc Sasquatch is what they're calling him now. Um, I, I forget, but <laughs> uh, basically determines that um, Lankowski has now inhabited the body of uh, Doc uh, Samson, which we saw in the last issue basically get into a car and hitch a ride. Um, but we basically catch up with the Gamma Flight team, and um, they're able to kind of you know reflect on everything that had happened uh as well as uh listen to a a quick radio broadcast about the uh ufos um taking down the hulk and uh catching up with the merge of rick jones and delphi which i have to say is just absolutely terrifying because you can actually kind of see them uh basically sharing thoughts but also trying to think separately which they're struggling with and it's it's just this really horrific imagery of them merged together trying to trying to speak basically but um so that's when we go to new jersey uh where the newly resurrected uh gray hulk um pumped full of cosmic energy uh is basically giving the ufos a royal smackdown um and he basically takes down ironclad and breaks his arm and folds him and he you know sucks up vapor who basically tries to attack him and um he basically breathes in vapor holds like holds his holds her in his lungs and then breathes it out at um i i think his name is uh x-ray um and he basically just annihilates his face uh, and infects it with uh, vapors, you know, noxious gas. Um, And that's when, you know, Vector kind of panics and basically just, you know, whisks uh, Banner away and um, he's flying through the air. And um, 
that's when uh, Peter Gerich basically checks in and finds out that they got totally smacked on, so he decides that uh, better to work with the devils that you do know and decides it might be time to call in the Avengers. Um, and we pick up with uh, good old Bruce, or I guess it's Joe Fixit actually, as Hulk now, uh, in a bar, um, joyfully reciting some lines from Cheers uh, as he asks the bartender for a drink and is basically just like, calm down, man. Like, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just here to get just here to get a drink and, and just calm down. And that's when he gets a, a face full of hammer from Thor, who, you know, is basically telling Hulk that he needs to come in. And, um, you know, if he tries to fight, he'll be facing the all power of Thor and he's pontificating and everything. And, you know, Joe just isn't having it. He just does <laughs> not care. He's like, I, dude, you are just not whatever. Um, and so that is when, um, they kind of fight for a little bit in the bar and Joe basically knocks Thor through the bar window and um, he climbs out to see the Avengers in full view, basically ready to take him down. And, um, you know, he's basically being antagonized by the Avengers who say, you know, it doesn't really matter how much trouble you cause. There's a whole bunch of us and there's just one of you. And that's when we get our mysterious... Uh, mysterious savior uh who i will not name but who will basically be coming to bruce or uh, joe's rescue uh in the next issue um so i don't know about you but like and i don't want to sound like a broken record but immortal hulk is just so awesome and like seeing the cosmic irradiated hulk just absolutely <laughs> smack down the ufos after the issue where he basically had the same thing happen to him um, was really satisfying, like yeah. probably disturbingly so. Like the fact that I took such delight in the UFOs just getting absolutely wrecked, especially Ironclad, who basically had his hand folded. Um, was oh, just, man. I don't know, just just really satisfying to me, and kind of seeing Joe as like this big, you know, gray cosmic Hulk who just does not give a crap, walk into the bar and like recite cheers. <laughs> um, lyrics and it's just like ah, I'm just here to get a drink, man. Like, come on, relax. And it was just it was just a really like solid continuing issue, and I had a lot of fun reading it. Um, and as always, the art by Joe Bennett is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I really like his version of Thor. Um, the the double page spread in particular, where Thor is throwing his hammer and it kind of is knocking uh, Joe's chin, was just it's just really impressive looking. Um, so in case you couldn't tell. I absolutely love this issue, and I ended up giving it an 8.5. Actually, no, an 8.75 out of 10. Awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed this issue as well. Um, I pretty much agree on all counts, especially, you know, the only thing that I wrote in my notes, and it might have just been because I read, <laughs> I read this late at night, and uh, I guess the only thing I wrote in my notes was just that, like, heck yeah, stomping the UFOs. Heck yeah. Um, and cause like that did resonate with me. Cause not only is it, like you said, maybe a bit too satisfying, but two issues ago, we were seeing not just the UFOs beating the Hulk. We were seeing them enjoying beating the Hulk. Yeah. Which was, I think what made this so satisfying because they weren't just like a group of people who were, you know, Oh, we got to stop the Hulk to get paid. Oh, we got to stop the Hulk. Cause it's right. 
we got to stop the Hulk for X, Y, Z. It was, we got to enjoy beating this weakened, tragic Hulk. Exactly. And that's where, you know, it's like, okay, you guys, you guys are dicks. I get it. And then so when Joe Fixit comes out and he's just like, yeah, I'm a dick too. (laughs) It's like, everything about it is deserved. It feels good. The lines in the bar, you, you nailed it. They're so funny. Yeah. That the tone is right. The Avengers showing up is going to be a good, an interesting culmination to all this. Like it's, I, I really liked it as a, a next step issue. I gave this one a, a nine out of 10. Awesome. Uh, next on our list is the start of the Heroes Reborn event with Heroes Reborn number one. Brought to us by writer Jason Aaron. Pencils by Ed McGinnis. Inks by Mark Morales, color by Matthew Wilson, and lettering by Corey Petit. With this one, because it is the start of a big event, I'm not going to go too deep onto the summary here, uh, because there's a good chance you know something in the next 12 issues of Heroes Reborn is going to want to catch someone's eye. So I'm really going to do a high level. With this one, we find ourselves following Blade in an alternate universe. It seems that Blade is the only one here who remembers the 616 continuity. He has looked around for the heroes that he recognizes. He has found that Tony never got hurt and therefore is still an arms dealer. Uh, Jen Walters is still just a lawyer who runs a successful practice. Bruce did become the Hulk but was banished to the negative zone. Uh, Carol Danvers is just a fighter pilot. And Robbie Reyes is just a kid. So, in exploring this world and trying to figure out what's different, there's no Avengers Mountain. It's Everything has changed, but there are still heroes. And we spend some time getting to see the Squadron Supreme. We get to see Hyperion, Nighthawk, Princess Power, Doctor Spectrum, and Blur sort of fighting a variety of alternate vi- alternate universe villains such as Doctor Doom with the gen- gem of Satorak becoming Doctor Juggernaut <laughs> uh Red Skull with the Venom symbiote uh Quicksilver and Wanda or Quicksilver's powers have been fused into Wanda so she is now the Silver the Silver Witch and several more alternate continuities And we get to see this and we get to see Blade interact with one of the members of the Squadron Supreme on his quest to figure out what's going on here. We get to see President Coulson being very sinister. And we get to see Blade at the very end take a walk to try and find what he believes is the the true difference between these two timelines. He's looking for the Avenger who was never found. And that's all I'm going to touch on that in terms of plot yeah now in terms of my actual thoughts on this issue maybe i'm a little harsh critic on this i i found that this was a this was a oversized issue it was i think 39 pages with a lot of cool shots seeing princess power fight all gog and dr spectrum fighting uh in space nice beautiful beautiful art very nice to look at but ultimately this was a boring comic yeah yeah just it i mean oh sorry i, I didn't mean to cut you off but yeah no no absolutely go ahead it it did not really 
capture me in the way that I thought. And if I'm being honest, it felt a little derivative of House of M, um, where you have, you know, strange new world of, you know, altered histories of your favorite heroes, except one person remembers it, um, except this time, you know, instead of it being Wolverine, it's, um, you know, it's Blade. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. It, it did not blow me away. It was serviceable. And it, alternate, alternate universe stories can be fun, but it, it just, yeah, it really was not, like, all that interesting, if I'm being honest. Yeah, and that's that's really the thing is, I think to me, the thing that makes alternate history and alternate universes more interesting mm. is seeing the characters that we are passionate about already yeah. recast in a new light. Mm. And the biggest thing with this one is it recasts all of our favorite Avengers as non-existent. Yeah. Tony is lame. Carol is unremarkable. Jenny isn't doesn't even appear in the panel. She's just a text box that says she's a lawyer. And so all of these these issues like we're not seeing cool alternate universe Avengers. We're not seeing what happened to Iron Man in this timeline that yeah. made him unique or different. We're just seeing oh, world without Iron Man. Yeah, exactly. And we're spending 40 pages on that. And and this is, you know, this is technically a minor thing, but they really steered into the Squadron Supreme being straight DC ripoffs. <laughs> Very much like the Justice League, like almost annoyingly so. Specifically, I think the biggest offender here is Princess Power. Mm, yeah. She is drawn as Wonder Woman. Yeah. Like just and no no attempt made to make her look any different at all. Yeah, no. And I and, and I, I I think it definitely hits worse for me because I've seen Ed McGuinness do the Trinity before, and it is like seriously it 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 really is like the exact same thing. Um, even Wizard, whose costume is I mean his color scheme is is different from Flash, but it is like like facial features, movements, it is like exactly like the Justice League. Mhm. Yeah, it's Yeah, that was the thing. A lot of this comic fell flat and it was yeah. a lot of Blade monologuing, just yeah. sort of narrating what he has found that's different. And it just didn't grab me. I I ended up getting to the end of it and kind of wishing that it had found a way to cram this into a little quicker mm. specifically you know we had we had i think we had a shot of each of the squadron supreme members fighting a, a, a separate villain yeah uh which i guess was to tease that this is the alternate universe hyperion versus dr juggernaut mm. princess power versus all gog silver witch etc yeah but at the end of the day we got one panel of each of those villains and we didn't get any characterization of the members of the squadron except for Nighthawk. Yeah. And that, that, that for me definitely felt like a little, like if this is your 
you know, new team in, in this new reality, I feel like you kind of need more information about them outside of they look and act like the Justice League. Like, you can't just kind of go off of that and expect people to just roll with it, I guess. Um, although, I don't know, maybe that's what they were going for. But yeah, I really, I really, I, I, I really would have liked to have seen kind of like, I don't know, more characterization of them as a team or maybe a little more individually. It just, it felt like they just kind of do whatever they do and that's it. Like, you know, Wizard does this, Dr. Spectrum does that. Really, like you said, the only one we really get any kind of characterization and, and background on, or at least more information about, you know, who he is and his mannerisms is is, is Nighthawk. And that was mm-hmm. unfortunate. Yeah, so this comic... I'm not going to say that it condemns the Heroes Reborn event because this one's going to be going on for a little bit now mm-hmm. and they've got quite a few tie-ins. Some of them might be good, some of them might not. They've At the end of this issue, they put a couple teasers of like concept art of some of the other Heroes Reborn teams. Mm. Um, I can't remember the name offhand. I didn't put it in my notes, but we see what the this world's equivalent of Alpha Flight is. Yeah. We see a couple glimpses of redesigns in there. We see, you know, the I think I think it's supposed to be the champions is replaced by I think it's called like the the young squadron or the young supreme. Yeah, the young squadron and they have kind of the um the X-Men like team, the mutant force in addition to a weapon X um team that will work i think alongside the this version of um alpha flight as as well as kind of it being its own thing of uh of weapon x but Mm -hmm. um and then you know we do see in kind of like the the teaser images sort of towards the end where i'm assuming it's showing you know things that are going to happen in the future um possibly more to do with um you know the doctor doom juggernaut and um possibly Captain America escaping the ice and, you know, maybe some, maybe some other stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It just, I, I, I wish I could say I was more excited about this one and, you know, flipping through this comic, um, because I I remember thinking, you know, wow, this really does look like the justice league, just like you said. But, um, I mean, really looking at some of the panels with Nighthawk, especially when he's like, when you see him from the back, he looks just like Batman. Um, <laughs> and like I've I've seen, like I said, I've seen Ed McGinnis draw the Trinity. I've seen Ed McGinnis do Batman, Superman, because he did that comic with Jeff Jeff Loeb for a little bit. Um, but like it's like it's like almost uncomfortable how much he looks like Batman from the back, especially with the ears. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. So with this one, because of its length and despite the fact that the art was really good, I just couldn't get into it and I couldn't really recommend this as a like thrilling read. I gave this one a 5.5 out of 10. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I, I actually rated this one a little higher. I ended up giving it a 6.5 out of 10 just because I, I did really like the art from Ed McGinnis. And I, I like I said, I, I enjoy a fun alternate universe premise. But I just, like I said, the execution just wasn't there for me. Awesome. So next we'll go to Amazing Spider-Man number 65. Brought to us by Nick Spencer on writing. Art by Federico Vicentini and Federico Sabatini. Color by Alex Sinclair. And lettering by Joe Caramagna. 
Brandon, uh, what happened in this issue? Uh, so this issue basically just, re- well, almost resolves the whole um, Randy Beetle being kidnapped by Crime Master and um, Madame Mask plot, I guess you could call it, where we finally get to see, um, you know, Randy and Tombstone team up, uh, Randy and Tombstone, um, where we get to see uh, Robbie Robertson um, and Tombstone team up and basically try and, you know, figure out where their their children are. And um, they have some nice moments where they kind of relate to being a parent and how that can be frustrating because they feel like, you know, their children aren't doing, um, you know, what they ask. And it can be a little annoying, but they still love them in their own way. Uh, meanwhile, we're still continuing the subplot with um, Kingpin, Baron Mordo, and Kindred, um, where Kingpin has basically been using Baron Mordo to um, try and pry information out of Kindred, and um, he's just really been laying on the mystical heat, um, and in this particular uh, scene, we see Kindred actually kind of break a little bit and, and beg Norman to give him help, and when Norman basically, um, you know, tells Kingpin to stop and, you know, kind of threatens him a little bit, um, that's when you would expect there to be a, kind of a, a softer moment between Kindred and Norman, but um, Kindred still kind of bears those grudges, you know, basically saying that any time that um, you, any time that I tried to ask for help, you know, I, I basically never really received anything and and you know you never really listened to me um so that that just kind of helps to continue that story and, and also tie it up a little bit um but meanwhile uh with the crime master and madame mask uh they have basically just been talking about you know what what they're going to do um when uh tombstone and robbie robertson show up and um that's when um, they basically revealed that the um, empty warehouse that they'd kind of been walking through had been a mirage um, and basically reveals that the uh, informant that they had kind of shook down in the last issue, Mirage, had basically ratted them out to Crime Master and Madame Mask, and uh, that kind of gives them the opportunity, um, you know, to, to kind of bring in uh, uh, some reinforcements to kind of shut down Robbie and Tombstone. Um, but uh, unfortunately, as Spider-Man's still trying to make his way uptown um, to get uh, to the hideout, uh, that's when Tombstone basically reveals that he called his own backup, and it's the uh, the new uh, Sinister Syndicate uh, featuring the kind of all-female cast of... Uh, some of Spider-Man's villains, like uh, the female Elektra and the uh, Trapster and White Rabbit and so forth. So they basically spend some time fighting uh, with the Crime Master and uh, Madame Mask's goons and basically wrap that whole thing up and are, are basically able to shut them down. And Spider-Man shows up sort of towards the end and is able to assist and uh, work alongside the Syndicate, which they're not too happy about. But ultimately, they're able to save Randy and Beetle and... Um, that's when, uh, the two basically reveal that, uh, they'll be moving in together, which I'm sure is not going to be very good for Spider-Man. Um, but basically, uh, 
Norman uh, checks into uh, Ravencroft briefly, and we see him basically free someone, but we're not sure who that is, and that'll likely build up in the next arc. Um, and we also catch up with uh, Pete, who is checking in with MJ and Gog, and are basically talking about you know where Boomerang might have gone, because he basically left a letter in the last issue saying that he was going to go off to try and find the last pieces of the lifeline tablet by himself because he didn't want to put Pete in danger and um, that's when you know Gog is basically able to uh, sniff out one of Boomerang's boomerangs to basically try and track down where he is um, and you know even though he knows that Fred is probably going to be in some trouble and um, he's definitely going to need some help um, he decides to call in some backup uh, some very serious backup as he calls it um, and basically calls a, an, an old reunion of some some very, very dear friends of his, and I won't spoil who those are, but um, I'll say if you are an Avengers fan, more specifically if you're an Avengers fan of the last, you know, 15, 16 years or so, I think mm-hmm. you'll be very, very happy with this reunion. I know I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um, I... I think that this arc, the King's Ransom one, has been a serious improvement from the, I guess, previous arc, Last Remains, which did not have an ending and left me really cold and angry. Um, and, and this one has felt kind of more in line with the um, arcs that Nick Spencer has done that I've actually really enjoyed. Um, and and I, I think I've actually had a lot more fun with the last two issues than I've had with spider-man in a while um i think not only does the artwork really lend itself to kind of like the fun and and free tone of of the book but it's it's also just kind of nice to see um you know pete have to confront some of these you know lesser villains and and really try and create an interesting story with it and also trying to create interesting stories with uh pete's supporting cast like with tombstone like with robbie robertson and um all these other characters so I actually had a, a, a pretty fun time with it. Uh, what did you think, Kurt? Yeah, I I'm enjoying this arc in the uh, the Amazing Spider-Man series. Mm. I I like his new live streaming digs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I love just the the one panel where uh, JJ is leaning back in his chair, mm-hmm. looking at his phone, watching through Spider-Man's eyes. Yeah. It it cracks me up to imagine that as something happening because the JJ that we've known for so long, just relaxing and watching some casual Spider Man live feed. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. It's it's so crazy. And then you know having Spidey team up with the Syndicate against Madame Mask was a fun. A fun bit. I, I like them spending time together, and then the calling in backup at the end. And I just want to say, uh, the art by uh, both of the Federicos. Mm-hmm. Um, that last panel. I know we're not spoiling who's uh, who's been called in for backup, mm-hmm. but the way they were drawn, it is a beautiful shot. Oh yeah, for sure. And. This is also a really silly thing because I do like that live streaming getup. I like his new his new look for as long as they keep it stuck around. Mm-hmm. But I gotta say, I'm honestly pretty excited for when they make another Spider-Man video game 
and I get to oh and I get to unlock that costume. That would be no, that would be so great if like um, I don't know if you've ever played um, Arkham City or like any of the Arkham games. I I've played Arkham Asylum and City. I didn't get around to the other two, but okay. I've heard they're um, good. Yeah, no. So um, both both games have great main stories, but they also have some really fun like DLC campaigns um, and just just. Like thinking of having the live stream suit in a video game made me think of having like, you know, the next time they do a, a big Spider-Man game for a main console, they have a DLC where it features like you, but you're you're basically wearing the live streaming suit and you have to like interact with fans and that sort of thing. Like it, it would just be a really just be like a really fun DLC campaign and like I, w- I would totally be down for something like that. But yeah, no, I'd, I'd be totally stoked to see this in a in another one. I also think it would be really hilarious if, just as like a touch to the uh, to the suit, if if you wore it in a video game and they had JJ's voice like spouting oh out God. like oh, "Take that, that dirt so bag" insane. as you're like punching yeah. people, just just have JJ like "Yeah, yeah get him!" Yeah, say <laughs> another one lighter, Spidey. Oh my God, that'd be so much fun. Yeah. So, and, and that's a weird thing to see, but honestly. Half of Spider-Man video games are like unlocking all the iconic suits, <laughs> and then yeah. all of the sub-iconic ones that were maybe around for just a little bit. And this is one of those suits that I think it, it looks good, and I'll be excited to see it come back just for just a fun sure. gag. Oh yeah, for sure. But as far as the issue goes, I had a good time with it. I liked, yeah. I like this a lot better than the last arc, and. I'm interested to see what Norman's doing. I'm interested to see, you know, what this, what this is building up to. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. No, I just, I mean, I know for me at least, like I'm, I I just really like want this kindred thing to be over. Like for me, the most fun parts of Nick Spencer's run on amazing Spider-Man have been him doing like these kind of fun short arcs involving lesser known spider-man characters that really just humanize pete in a way the bigger arcs with kindred like sometimes they can be okay but more often than not they just are hit or miss like last remains had some some solid moments i'll admit but the fact that it just it kept going on and it never really resolved the kindred thing even though everyone was waiting for it 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 was just really frustrating so I'm I'm almost at this point I'm just like just please just get get it over with so we can just enjoy other stories um cuz like every time I see that subplot I'm just like ugh how long is this going to go on Mhm cuz like well, yeah. Literally, yeah literally like I've been reading this book for 3 years and we still have no idea what the full kindred story is Mhm Yeah and that's the thing and it reminds me a little of sort of a smaller, less offensive, but still present version of what happened with the uh, the Clone Saga. Yeah. Where they started putting these things that were, oh, what's going to happen? Who is this guy? Who is mm-hmm. this guy? What's the real story? And then just those like questions mm-hmm. became enough of a mimetic, like viral marketing that they just didn't feel the need to resolve it in any right. reasonable amount of time. And I feel with just how much they were pushing Kindred 
all over the place. Kindred was on their news feeds. All the comic book news websites were like, who's Kindred? What's he yeah. doing? What's going on? You know? And like it, they blew him up as he's this big, big, big deal. But there hasn't been a big, big, big res- resolution to that. Exactly. And I, yeah, that's just... That's where my frustration was kind of coming from, where I'm just like, if you could just resolve it and get it over with, I would be satisfied and we could just enjoy these kind of fun arcs on their own. But the fact that we kind of have to keep bringing it up and never really getting a proper resolution, it's just, it's it's grating. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, like I said, I had, a, I had a really fun time with this issue. Yeah, me too. I gave this one a 7.5 out of 10. How about you? I ended up giving this one an 8 out of 10. Awesome, awesome. All right, we're going to take a quick pause for the cause here and go to a short commercial break. And we're back. Coming up next on our list is Way of X number one. This is brought to us by writer C. Spurrier, artist Bob Quinn, color by Hava Tartaglia, and lettering by Clayton Cowles. Way of X number one starts us on a new arc in X-Men following Nightcrawler and sort of his ongoing tribulations with with where we left him off in the the issue of the X-Men comic featuring the, the Crucible. Number seven, I think. Number seven, yes. This one starts with him... I guess this one starts with Xavier giving him sort of a telepathic call early in the morning to discover that he and some other mutants have gone on a raid of essentially a museum of mutant atrocities (laughs) to try and uncover an operation where they are training anti-mutant fanatics. And they, they fight against them. They, they, they find out what they're doing. They discover that they're training these these fanatics to oppose mutant kind and to be enemies of mutantdom. And it's, you know, a really ugly, hate-filled museum in that regard. But what the, the remainder of the issue really touches on is at the end of this little bit of a raid, you know, we see... The, these teenage mutants or these young mutants, they're, they're really starting to talk about resurrection as a as an inevitability, as part of their life, mm-hmm. as something cool, something that represents something. Yeah, fad almost. Yeah, and, and they talk about, you know, oh, she hasn't died yet, like but then they see at this one moment you know, a mutant decides, you know what will really screw with these fanatics? Guilt. And she walks in front of one and gets her head blown up by a shotgun. And our boy Kurt does not take this well. (laughs) Poor Kurt. And that's what really launches him even further down his path on there's something amiss in their society, that they have missed something in the development of their society. And so Kurt, you know, he's he talked a bit about a mutant religion, and he's not sure that that is exactly the right word or that that's what he's looking for. But he starts writing his notes, and we start getting these segments of what appear to be Kurt's notes documenting his search for answers 
for what to do about how to save a mutant soul. Mm. And what we get in this issue is we get him, he plays a, what seems like a playful prank on Magneto of all people. (laughs) (laughs) And Magneto is in true perfect Magneto fashion, able to immediately turn it around and use the prank to command the room (laughs) and just turn it into a big dramatic speech about the testament of human or of human folly in the face of mutant success. And he, he berates Kurt a little for these childish pranks because even though he does not agree with the religious sentimentality of Kurt, he identifies that Kurt is on to something important. Mm. You know, he doesn't tell Kurt to just give it up and go drinking at the lagoon. Yeah. He he specifically he treats Kurt in a way to encourage him to go down a path. And then we also see Kurt, he interacts with another mutant who is asking for help, asking for directions, asking for his help, and he, he's not giving this mutant the time of day. And he sort of blows this mutant off and he goes off on his sort of quest where he bumps into Dr. Nemesis. And Dr. Nemesis and he have a bit of conversations about what's going on on Krakoa, what's going on with science, the soul, religion. It's a very philosophical book. It's really cool in that regard. And then the book ends with... uh, Kurt and Dr. Nemesis going to the Crucible, where we find that that mutant who uh, before was being was asking Kurt for help, she is now being killed by Magneto in the Crucible. And she she looks up at him and he looks on with horror because she indicates, you know, we get to choose who kills us. And I was told you're one of the gentler ones. And it's it's a very heart-wrenching scene for him. Mm-hmm. And it really sets him on this path that he knows something has to be fixed. And we see it in his writings, we see it in his monologuing, that he is he knows something has to be addressed in Krakoa. Because as well as all of this, interspersed is these creepy l- myths of the patchwork man following mutants around and scaring them and we're, we're seeing the newly resurrected Pixie. She sees something alarming in the distance, but doesn't really address it. And it, it's growing this sense of unease, both with the mutant society as a whole and with a potential threat looming in their ranks. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, after they resurrect that mutant from the Crucible and restore her powers... Uh, Xavier indicates why he called Kurt at the beginning of the issue that he wants Kurt to do what he believes probably no other mutant can. He wants to send him to go and talk to Legion. Which is where this book ends off, leaving Kurt having just encountered Legion. And it's going to be an interesting little family drama there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what did you think of Way of X? Um, It's hard to boil down all my thoughts um, because I I just, I had so many um, in in the way that I was thinking about this book. It's just, it's, I think to kind of 
put everything under one umbrella. What I really loved about it, oh god, I can't even do that. Okay, okay, it's it's like it's like two <laughs> things under one umbrella. Number one, we'll call this one A and one B. If we're just putting it under one umbrella, one A is seeing Kurt kind of react to these, I guess, weird cultural practices on Krakoa, like the Crucible, like this. Um, almost fetishized version of dying that younger mutants seem to have, um, like Magneto's ability to, to almost worship mutantdom in a way. Um, seeing Kurt's reaction to that as a man of God was just fascinating to me because he just doesn't really know how to process it. He doesn't know what to do. And, you know, he has that great conversation with Dr. Nemesis where he's just like, you know, what does the religious man do when all the questions have been answered? And he's basically just like, you have to find newer questions to ask, but that's, you know, that's easier said than done. And it's, it's really hard for him as someone who is so religious. Um, and number two, I think, or I guess one B is just seeing how this book really digs into kind of the unsettling nature of some of the Krakoan culture uh, some of the aspects of Krakoan culture and, um, you know, how younger mutants are really just eating up this whole anti-human rhetoric and how they almost worship dying and being reborn and, and, you know, seeing the brutality of the crucible in action, particularly with mutants who are still trying to control themselves and, um, of course, seeing how the people react to, to Magneto and, seeing you know the um children around the campfire with exodus talking about the patchwork man like there's just so much going on with krakoan culture it's just just such a fascinating lens and it feels like this is kind of what that issue of x-men uh, and really what a lot of the issues of x-men have been hinting at but now we really have a book that's like digging into it and trying to explore it so um i just th that's just like the the you know, the tip of the iceberg of my thoughts about this book, but it's it's just such a fascinating lens, and I had a really great time reading it. Yeah, this book, I I was blown away. I mm -hmm. I knew I was going to be excited by it, and this is really focusing, like you said, on those parts of Krakoa that, not to like make it sound too geeky, even though that's <laughs> what this podcast is. Yes, you know. You hear about, you know, you read something fictional and it's like, what if a society had this piece? What if a society had this? Mm -hmm. And you're left with these questions. Well, if a society was like this, it would, people would behave differently about things like death and things like resurrection and Absolutely. God. And this book touches on all of those bigger questions on what the evolution of that society looks like in the most interesting way each time. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, cause it really could have been done very dull. It could have just shown us that, you know, Oh, haha, death is flippant. Yeah. But they chose a very visceral way to present that to us. Oh yeah. And, and kind of choosing one of the best characters to react to it because you have someone like Kurt who, you know, is a man of God and obviously has a, a you know, a Catholic perspective on what death is and, and, what that means and kind of seeing people almost relish death would be horrifying for him and for any um for any catholic or religious man of god um so i, I just like i just think it's just a, such a perfect fit for 
for that kind of uh, exploration. Perfect character to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a great vehicle, and Nightcrawler is always <laughs> just the host of such amazing stories. Yeah. And he's a, he's a good character, and he's a good character for this. Mm. Uh, what did you what did you rate this issue? Uh, I actually ended up giving this one a nine out of ten. I just it was such a great first issue, and um, it's it's funny. Usually, when I read books like with Nightcrawler, they they tend to be more like lighthearted because I feel like Nightcrawler is is kind of more of a lighthearted character. Um, but this issue is really somber. Which, I, like, I, I feel like I rarely ever get to see Kurt in that light, where he's a bit more, you know, introspective. Usually he's, you know, bursting into the scene, speaking German, waving his sword around, that <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but, you know, this one was definitely a bit more reflective, and I just, I don't know, it really just worked for me. So, like I said, I ended up giving this one a 9 out of 10. I had a great time. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I gave this one a 9.5 out of 10. Awesome. I was a big fan of this book. I'm a big fan of seeing where it's going. Mm. Um, I hope it goes good. I'm interested in what they're hinting at with the Patchwork Man and Kurt's journey. Legion in the past has not been a villain that I've resonated a lot with. Yeah. But seeing what they're doing right here with, with Nightcrawler and the mutants, I'm optimistic and I think this is going to be a good arc. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, outside of anything else to really talk about in this issue, I do just want to bring up one, and this isn't a, an actual flaw with the issue, but it's something that the entirety of the X-Men current run has been guilty of, mm. is the, the documents that they slide in between the pages <laughs> Yeah, have this weird convoluted relationship with redacting, mm-hmm. where... You know, they they'll they present this file excerpt from the desk of so and so from the book of what's his name, and they'll redact the name. Even though the biggest thing with these that makes it why I have such a <laughs> like a a rock in my mm-hmm. shoe about this is that because they have so far proved that they don't go back and unredact anything. Yeah. It's, it's unlikely that they're ever going to reveal who this is in an interesting way. So for these ones in this one, it sounds like it should be Nightcrawler. It, For all intents and purposes, it pretty much is Nightcrawler mm-hmm. writing these pages. But we're left to just not quite be 100% sure of that. Yeah, I guess that's uh, that's the mystery for now. But so far, after what is now a year and a half of mm-hmm. Dawn of X into uh, now Reign of X. Mm-hmm. I'm just seeing so much where they, it they seem to just sort of redact random proper nouns yeah, and never, never go back to make them like relevant. Mm-hmm. And that's not a flaw with this book. It's just a flaw with a minor flaw with all of sort of the recurring themes of X-Men that like, if you're going to redact something, I think it has to, it has to reward the re- the reader later for like playing that mystery game. Yeah. You definitely saying, need like, some kind of payoff. Yeah. And I don't think we've gotten that in what they've shown of these documents so far. Yeah. Some of these documents have been great. I personally loved Dr. Nemesis proposed hierarchy of science. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty <laughs> great. And like 
how he's basically just occupying all the like science roles on Krakoa. Like it's it's just him. That was that was phenomenal. Right? He it's just him, but I believe if I remember right and I'd have to look it up, I thought there was one that he didn't occupy. Yeah, I don't I don't remember. I I, I yeah, all, all I remember is it was just it was a lot of Doctor Nemesis and I think I was just like, all right. But uh, there might have been one. Right. There's one that is uh the, well, there's one supervisory position that is vacant, and that is law and ethics. Ah, uh, <laughs> of course, of course, he wouldn't deign himself to that kind of thing. Yeah. So once again, highly recommend Way of X mm-hmm. to all our listeners out there. If you're looking for an X Men book to get in on, if maybe Hellions or Excalibur has uh, earned less favor with you lately, highly recommend jumping in on Way of X. Absolutely, absolutely. Next, we'll go on to Beta Ray Bill. This is by writer Daniel Warren Johnson, with Daniel Warren Johnson also doing the art, mm-hmm. with color by Mike Spicer and lettering by Joe Sabino. Uh, Brandon, I'll let you summarize Beta Ray Bill number two. Absolutely. So this issue picks up from the last one where Beta Ray Bill had left Asgard in an attempt to find himself a new weapon or some kind of power. That would basically make him feel more comfortable uh, with himself, or as he put it, that would make him feel beautiful again. So uh, we pick up with Beta Ray Bill just kind of chatting back and forth with his ship, Scuttlebutt, um, where uh, Scuttlebutt reveals that there is another life form that has, um, you know, appeared on the ship, uh, and, you know, they're not sure what it is. Uh, So Beta Ray goes to check it out, and that's when he discovers that the mysterious life form is actually Scourge from Asgard, um, and Thor Ragnarok fans might recognize Scourge because <laughs> he uh, goes on quite a lot about how even though he had died and was living in Valhalla, he was unhappy there because they didn't have guns. And how can you be in you know such a heavenly place without guns? It just seems ludicrous. <laughs> so <laughs> he begs uh, the people in Valhalla um, to basically let him go so that he can help Beta Ray on his quest. Um, and he reveals that he knows where Odin is staying, um, which is where Beta Ray, which is where Beta Ray Bill is hoping to find, you know, some kind of answer as to, you know, how to make himself beautiful again and how to get another weapon. Um, so they go to some shady bar um, and, you know, get into a fight with a guy who's kind of picking on Beta Ray Bill for his appearance and, Scourge totally smacks him down, and um, that's <laughs> basically uh, where you know uh, Odin shows up and and basically you know says you know hey guys cool it you know I, I thought this was supposed to be a quiet bar and so Beta Ray and Scourge catch up with Odin and um, you know Beta Ray Bill basically just tells Odin of his his problems and that he needs a new hammer um, and so. Uh, that's when Odin basically reveals that even though he had made Beta Ray Bill's previous hammer and imbued it with a certain magic, he just no longer has access to it, and um, he just can't summon that kind of magic anymore. And you know, Beta Ray Bill just isn't having it because he served him so faithfully for years, um, and he can't believe that you know there's no other way. Um, and I, I just kind of have to go on a side note here and say that um, I really love. Um, Bill's outfit like in this scene because it's like um, 
<laughs> it's it's literally just like like Beta Ray Bill obviously has you know kind of the the horse face, but it's literally just him <laughs> in a t-shirt and a baseball cap. Right. <laughs> it, it just looks like so casual, and it's just so funny to me because it looks. Usually he's dressed in like you know Asgardian garb or like really regal clothing, but it's just like like casual wear. Um, I think it's the baseball cap that really sells it for me because when he's kind of yelling at Odin about how he's faithfully served him and how he needs uh, a way to make himself normal again, it's it's with the baseball cap and it just looks so silly. Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's when Odin reveals that there is another place where he can uh, find a weapon uh, in Muspelheim, uh, where he could take the sword of Surtur, known as Twilight, um, and you know potentially use that uh, as as a means to um, you know make himself normal again and get his power back. Um, but you know it, it's no easy feat to get to uh, Muspelheim. As we soon find out, because um, for one, Bill kind of refuses to use the Bifrost, which would be the easiest way um, to get, you know, to uh, Muspelheim. And, you know, we, we know why he's a bit reluctant to use uh, the Bifrost, given his kind of frosty relationship with Sif right now. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that's when we reveal that uh, he basically has to go through um a gate in a citadel that's uh being kept around a portal that will lead into muspelheim but um the reality is that people who enter muspelheim come out changed um and you know if they come out alive at all and um you know when they meet the guards at muspelheim who are basically kind of telling him you know of the blackness that's within uh the realm they basically reveal that you know should you enter things will be completely different when you come back out but they decide to venture into it anyway so um bill scourge and another stowaway named pip who is also kind of um you know not happy with his current station uh given that he's a troll uh enter muspelheim and basically see how terrible it looks and that's when scuttlebutt uh Beta Ray Bill's ship starts having some problems and um, not really sure what's going on, but we see kind of some things wrapping together in the background. And um, shortly after that, we see that Scuttlebutt has essentially formed a new body, uh, what appears to be a female body um, that will, you know, potentially journey on with Bill. And that's where our issue ends. Um, and, you know, in case you, you couldn't tell from the tone of my voice, I'm just really, really wrapped up in this story with Bill, um, and I, I just absolutely love the artwork from Daniel Warren Johnson. I'm a huge fan of Daniel Warren Johnson, um, and I would urge people who have not checked out his other books, particularly Extremity uh, over at Image, to, to go do so, because he's an absolutely phenomenal writer and artist. Um, but I'm really just loving this kind of journey quest that uh, Bill is going on to try and, you know, redeem himself in his own eyes and and um he's kind of got a ragtag team of people following him around and it's 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 fun to see scourge and all these other people just kind of team up with him so um it's a really fun read a really solid read um and it it pairs i think very nicely with the thor book as well so um, i had a really great time with it Uh, how about you kirk 
Yeah, I'm really enjoying uh, this story. I like the writing. I like Beta Ray Bill's journey in this. And I really, really like the art. Mm -hmm. The art is vaguely reminiscent of... I don't know if you've read anything by uh, Tom Parkinson Morgan. I have not. But but there's just some pieces of this. I'm a big fan of Tom Parkinson Morgan's Kill Six Billion Demons Mm -hmm. series. And... There's just a few panels in the way, uh, specifically the way this, um, the one shot of Scuttlebutt, where it's like an x-ray panel, and you can see into all the different rooms oh, of the ship. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was great. There's there's a few shot, there's a shot like that in this book that, you know, uh, in Kill Six Billion Demons, you see those quite a bit, and it's yeah. such a reminiscent shot, and I just wow. love it. Yeah, that was absolutely phenomenal. Um, as far as the book goes, yeah, it's really good. The uh, the journey into Moosebullheim really interests me because not only did it change Scuttlebutt, but man, when I look at Scuttlebutt, I see this sort of almost Hellraiser esque body in mm-hmm. there. Like, oh yeah, for sure, it's a little unsettling. Um, it's not just you know, oh she's an android. It's oh she's what? <laughs> yeah. So I I've had a good time with this. The, the comedic timing between, you know, the sort of subtle comedy notes of, you know, Bill dressed in his shirt and cap, <laughs> Scourge going on and on about guns in Valhalla, mm-hmm. Scourge going on about being the wing, his wingman. His wingman, yeah. And, you know, even the fight scene, that bar brawl. Oh, God. Gorgeously drawn. Yeah, when, um, like... Scourge slaps the guy who's basically, you know, mocking Bill. It's just like this just gorgeously illustrated panel of his hand just like slapping his cheek and you can like see his face almost move and it has these great like action lines in the background. It's it's followed immediately by him being like slammed into the ground. It's just oh, it's so beautiful to look at. Absolutely. Yeah, so I really enjoyed this one. I gave Beta Ray Bill issue number two an 8.5 out of 10. Yeah, no, I gave this one an 8.5 as well. Just absolutely phenomenal read. Awesome. With that, we will now go into our lightning reviews. Uh, For those who are joining us for the first time, our lightning reviews are quite a bit shorter than our other reviews, where we will spend a little bit less time on the summary and just go over the high-level notes that, uh, that you need to read from this and whether or not it was a a recommended read or something you could give a miss to. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to start with America Chavez made in the USA. Number three by Kalinda Vasquez art by Carlos Gomez coloring by Jesus Abertov and lettering by Travis Lanham. This one continues where the last one left off. Uh, America has, was knocked unconscious at a place by a stranger who identified where she was as the utopian parallel, even though she's just on an island somewhere on earth. Hmm. The rest of the comic explains that this character has is identifying herself as America's sister, who we is a new thing for us. You know, she shows that she has the stars on her wrists and she seems to have similar powers to America. And she talks about how she knows why America's powers are fading. And it's because they are both, According to this, they both have edges syndrome, uh, which is an illness that they were both treated for as kids. 
if we are to believe what her sister is saying, that this island is actually a treatment center for kids with that illness, mm-hmm. where they are exposed to some kind of magical vault that is full of power that gives the children these these gifts, as well as healing or delaying their onset of edges disorder. Mm-hmm. And the big revelation of this issue is that it implies that every single piece of America Chavez literature up until now has been wrong. Oh. Oh, wow. Um, I know this is a lightning review, so I'm not. I'm going to try not to spend too much time on this, but the entire premise of this is that the utopian parallel does not exist. She is not from a society of superheroes. Her parents were regular businesswomen who were paying a billionaire who had a private island to fix their daughter. Um, And somehow the fixing of their daughter led to her getting superpowers. And we haven't found out what would have happened to the two of them because when they were superheroes trapped in the utopian parallel, that made sense. But now they're just women who abandoned America. And I, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, and it also, if you read Young Avengers' second run, uh, America has a close tie-in with Wiccan, because apparently Wiccan is supposed to become the Demiurge, who creates Utopia and presides over it as, like, a deity. Yeah. And they and the Demiurge has been a big part of Wiccan's ongoing story. But if America imagined her entire childhood, that's also not real. Yeah, and and also, I mean, I I guess I'm just confused because I, I I didn't get a chance to read this issue, but I I guess I'm just confused as to how they gave her powers that allowed her to like move across the different you know dimensions and everything. Because like I remember that being a big part of her power set, where she was kind of mm-hmm. able to go into different dimensions. Especially in the Ultimates, but I, mm, yeah, I don't know. This is yeah, that's, that's weird. Ugh. Either this, yeah, either this is a villain trying very hard to convince America that she's crazy. Uh huh. In which case, they're going to turn it around in the last two issues of this run, and it's going to be a cool little twist. Mm-hmm. Or they are dropping an entire complete front-to-back retcon on America Chavez. Oh, I hope it's not that last one. That would really suck. Because right now, she now has a sister who has the same powers of her, and there's just this science facility on an island somewhere that a billionaire just throws the girls into this science facility, and it gives them... I'm going to exaggerate a little bit. Some of the most powerful superpowers that we have seen on Earth 616. Mm. America Chavez has proven time and time again that her strength, speed, dimension hopping, flight far surpass most superheroes. Yeah. She's she's a primo powerful character, which, you know, some people have, you know, their own very valid issues with her as a character being that powerful. But they have now retconned that rather than her having these powers by being from the perfect dimension, she now just was just a kid who was exposed to a science machine uh, or something. It, it's not only a retcon. If it's a retcon, it is the most boring retcon. Yeah, that would really... <laughs> like, I just... I don't know. Like I said, I, I, 
I never really got the chance to read the the solo series that she did, but I, I had read Young Avengers and I had read the Ultimates, which I was I was both big fans of, and I, I just loved the kind of unique take of her hopping to dimension to from dimension to dimension and being this you know ultimate powerhouse um, that you know had this unique backstory of coming from a utopian parallel but still trying to write uh, crazy dimensions out there and, and also help out in six one six. But you know if if this is the new origin, man, that's that just really sucks. Like that's so lame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was sort of my my guttural response to this was, uh. I I like America Chavez. She's a fun character. I liked her in the Young Avengers. I liked her in the West Coast Avengers. I liked her in the Ultimates, and I even enjoyed her well enough in the much maligned solo series by Gabby Riviera. Mm. Um, a lot of people didn't care for that run, but I did. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Um, so I'm not sure where they're going with what seems to be, again, not just if this issue is to be taken as truth and not a narrative hokey pokey. Yeah. If this is actually the retcon that she is just a girl who was taken to a science facility for a disease and came out crazy powerful. A, I don't know why we're not just covered in America Chavez super people. Yeah, yeah, you'd think you'd have more. But also, just a random, never-before-seen billionaire did it is not what I want her backstory replaced with, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's supremely boring. That is ultimately yeah. boring. <laughs> mm. So, I gave this issue a 5.5 out of 10 Mm. only because honestly it's well written the plot is fine the art is fine it's all fine but it just spends its full length of this issue telling us that if you liked anything about america chavez up till now it's all based on her being crazy delusional yeah that yeah uh, oh well i guess we'll have to see right so moving on We've got Sword issue number five by Al Ewing, art by Valerio Schiti, color by Marte, Gra- Marte Gracia, and lettering by Ariana Mar. So, Brandon, I'll hand this one over to you. Absolutely. So, this issue picks up with the resurrection of one Fabian Cortez, um, who basically is finally presented with his option, or is finally presented with his opportunity to speak in front of the Quiet Council and make his case on why the, as he calls them, flat scans should have new rules on whether or not, you know, they should be murdered and mutants should be punished. And the whole issue just kind of revolves around him presenting his case in front of the Quiet Council. And, um, you know, there are some really great moments where he's trying to define what is and isn't murder, whether letting people die of old age or even of diseases is is considered or should be counted as murder and um ultimately he is kind of taken down by magneto who's basically talking about how you know we've all suffered at the hands of humans and we've all you know possibly reacted poorly at points but um you know this whole experiment this whole krakoa opportunity is for us to basically step forward and say we're taking a new chance and we have to make a 
a place of laws. Um, and, you know, he has this really great moment where he just says, you know, we've all suffered, but if anyone has suffered, it's me. And, and I dare anyone, especially someone like you, Cortez, to look me in my eye and tell me that and your sufferings have been worse than mine. And I think that that one was just really powerful considering all that Magneto has been through. Um, I think he's mm-hmm. still canonically a Holocaust survivor, so um, that that especially has some extra weight to it. Um, but we also get some some resolution to other subplots involving the um, uh, the uh, Snark War plot, which is uh, also ongoing in the Guardians of the Galaxy series, which is where that was kind of initiated, and um, we kind of see one of the leaders of the Snark War try and make a case in front of the Kree supreme intelligence and um, basically is murdered by an assassin and it just kind of resolves the whole you know chain of succession and who comes next uh, after um, whoa it's disappeared again oh should we go after Abigail Brand sends uh, Amelia Vaught to basically determine who the next uh, successor is going to be um, and basically just wraps that up and, and um, we kind of resolve everything. And then one of the other big reveals is that um, at least for the time being, uh, uh, Fabian Cortez will be replaced by one of the Arakans or people of Araco uh, known as Cora of the Burning Heart, who will basically be filling uh, Cortez's place as the uh, power builder. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was just a... I think for me, the standout was absolutely seeing uh, Fabian in front of the Quiet Council trying to make his case. Uh, it was just excellently, excellently written. Um, and I think even more interesting was the fact that he had to do it in the nude um, and, <laughs> and still is as cocky and brash about it as uh, Fabian Cortez would normally be. Um, but just really digging into the whole philosophy of what is murder and what isn't murder and um, seeing Fabian kind of duke it out in words, you know, with various members of the council was just really, really great. So I ended up giving this issue an 8.5. It's absolutely my favorite issue of S.W.O.R.D. thus far. Um, and I'm just I'm super excited to see where this series is going, especially if it involves more stuff. I, with, I can't believe I'm saying this, but with Fabian Cortez and other people basically trying to figure out what happens next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a really good issue. I gave this one an 8 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Next on our list, we have Hellions number 11 by Zeb Wells with art by Steven Segovia, coloring by David Curiel and lettering by Ariana Mar. Hellions 11 finishes up the arc where the Hellions are being captured and tortured by Mr. Sinister and Arcade is using Sinister to set up a cloning facility. Uh, we find that Quanon Psylocke has mm-hmm. usurped some of Mastermind's control and is has combined her simulation with scalp hunters uh, sort of imagined reality and is slowly using her psychic powers to bring them together. Uh, Mastermind's control is weaker if she can fuse their consciousness against his. Um, And then it cuts also to Mr. Sinister building the cloning facility. He is 
uh, he has had a recent root canal from Arcade. Mm-hmm. So he spends most of the issue talking with a very written speech impediment. Oh, dear. <laughs> it's hilarious the way he's written. <laughs> his, he's depicted with his mouth all swollen up and yeah. teeth missing. He's, uh, But between him and the Hellions, they end up uh, pulling one over on Arcade and getting pulling a fast one on him. Mm-hmm. And the Hellions break out of the simulation... And they successfully use Mastermind to free both Mastermind's family from Arcade's control Mm -hmm. and the guy who was threatening Mastermind's family, his family, because Arcade just threatens families all the way down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And what this ends up being is we find out that Mastermind and Sinister had been plotting to betray Arcade this whole time. And this was just Sinister's secret way of getting a clone facility off Krakoa's books. Mm -hmm. And the only one who finds out the truth, as Mastermind convinces all the Hellions that they actually staged an epic breakout Mm -hmm. and saved Sinister. And they all can now corroborate this perfect story where Sinister tried to save them, but it backfired. So they had to save him. uh, But the only one who knows the truth is Quanon. And she is unhappy with being a pawn in Sinister's game. This was a a fun issue. It kept the interactions going between uh, Sinister Arcade and Sinister and Quanon, and it led, and it indicated a budding relationship between her and Scalp Hunter. Oh, yeah. That that there's some attraction growing there. But it's an enjoyable read, if still just kind of a stopover, stopover in the Hellions being sort of this kooky X-Men side story. Mm-hmm. Uh, enjoyable enough, though. I gave it a 7 out of 10. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I thought this was a, also a fun issue. I checked this one out, and um, yeah, I, I, had a, I had a really good time with it. Um, or I guess, you know, just in, in kind of Hellions fashion, so... Uh, I also gave, well, actually gave this one a 7.25 out of 10. But uh, yeah, it was a solid read. Awesome. All right. Next, we have Eternals number four, but with writing by Karen Gillen, art by Asad Rabich, coloring by Matthew Wilson, and lettering by Clayton Cowles. Uh, Brandon, I'll let you summarize this one. Absolutely. So this issue kind of just revolves around. Um, uh, Kingo and Thena uh, basically trying to confront um, uh, Druig, who they feel is the prime suspect right now for the murder of Zurus. And so uh, a lot of the issue deals with the backstory between Kingo and Druig and the last time that they kind of had to confront each other about something. And um, it, it deals a lot with, um, you know, na- uh, our history, world history, where Druig was basically serving the court of um, the Khan Empire, um, and Kingo is kind of unhappy about the way that he had been uh, riding with some of the the savages of the the Khans and how they'd basically just been burning place to place um, as as much and as often as they could. So um, a lot of it deals with that. Um, and so they're basically accusing Druig of, you know, betraying the Eternals and, and having a hand in Zeras's death. And 
that's when um, they reveal that, you know, Zeras didn't do it because Thanos shows up and uh, manages to, you know, take out Druig and, and the rest of the Eternals are kind of forced to try and, and put him down as quickly as they can, um, you know, and try and you know, resolve that uh, as much as they can. But uh, Thanos is able to escape via the machine uh, before they're able to really lock anything down. And so um, Thena and Kingo are, are basically able to just, you know, clear Druig of any suspicion, stating that, you know, clearly he couldn't have had a hand in the murder if Thanos, you know, was here to kill him. Um, and so they both leave, and that's when Thanos shows back up and uh, basically you know, says, you, you kind of were communicating to me that, that, you know, um, this was all a ruse and, uh, clearly you, you have some deeper ulterior motives and that's kind of when Druig reveals that, uh, you know, I'm not the traitor, but if you'd wanted one, you could have just come to me and I would have been happy to oblige. Um, there's also kind of some, some, uh, plot development with Sprite and Icarus who are still watching over the um kid toby robeson i believe his name is and they're basically just keeping an eye on him and that's really all you need to know but uh mostly the issue focuses on kingo druig and thena um as well as uh, a brief little check-in um with cersei who is gonna be basically relaying all the information about the eternals to tony stark because you know tony and uh cersei are the ones that have the the best relationship at least uh in respect to the other Eternals, um, so yeah, no, I, I, you know, this the series is is so great and so fascinating, and such an interesting look at the Eternals, and um, you know, I think in this age of uh, the Krakoan X Men, it's so great to have like this really interesting exploration of kind of another lesser known team. I mean, the X Men are, are not lesser known, but you know, they they'd kind of been in a weird place until we got the whole Krakoa thing. And so it's nice to see another <laughs> property kind of have this really interesting reinvention. Um, and you know, that also makes use of data pages and, and that sort of thing. So, um, it's a series that's just really amazing. And, um, I mean, I would be an idiot if I didn't mention how wonderful the art by Asad Rebic is. Uh, it's just gorgeous. And there's so many great panels, especially during the flashbacks with Kingo and Druig. Um, during the you know time where he's serving in the Khan Empire, and you can really just see the epic landscapes as well as even some of the quieter moments that that really just shine throughout uh, this issue. So I'm having such a great time reading this book, um, and I'm, I'm I'm always fascinated to see what they'll bring with each issue. So I gave this one an eight point five. Yeah, I really liked it. I gave it an eight point five as well. It's just the art is gorgeous and the story is really interesting mm -hmm. and I can't wait to see what they're, what they're doing and seeing Thanos yeah. in, in this art style. Oh, so great. Really great. Yeah. yeah just... I, Cause As Asad Rubich has only ever gotten to draw Thanos another time. And that was in secret wars and he looked so awesome there. So like <laughs> getting, you know, getting to see him draw Thanos again and in kind of like this badass way where he's just putting down the Eternals like it's nobody's business. It's just, it's so great. Um, we've had like two awesome takedown scenes this week. We've had um, Thanos taking down Thena and Kingo and Druig, and we've also had 
uh, Hulk taking down the UFOs. I don't know what it is this week. We had some pretty <laughs> badass takedowns. Right? Some Yeah, some real good takedowns. Good oh, smackdowns. Yeah, yeah. All right. The next issue on our list is Champions Number 6 by writer Danny Lore, art by Luciano Vecchio, color by Federico Blee, and lettering by Clayton Cowles. This one I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. This is the start of the new Killer App arc. We see now that in the Heinz, or the post-mortem of the Kamala's Law arc, even though the law is still in effect, mm-hmm. the champions are now a little bit more free to uh, to fight crime. They're, they're not being actively hunted and persecuted by Cradle anymore. Uh, so they it starts with them having a bit of a showdown in a with some bank robbers. But they find out after they leave that the bank robbers that they were fighting were actually hired bank robbers to test a security test. And that the security or the bank was not counting on superheroes showing up. Uh, So the champions go through a bit of drama that they're still not quite the best at superheroism. They they can't even properly identify when they're needed. Um, And then it really launches into the the crux of this arc is that Roxxon is being shady as always. Uh, Roxxon is sort of pushing towards their usual kind of too much, like very, what's the word, totalitarian business, like friendly company that's obviously got like sinister undertones. You know, Roxxon's usual look lately. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it's clear that something something's a little off there. Yeah, and then so we uh, we see the champions reacting to what Roxxon's doing and the protests against Roxxon and mm-hmm. how they and the champions essentially resolve to go against Roxxon mm-hmm. and it ends with the tease of a a future threat to the champions that they're going to be dealing with. And as far as the start for this arc, I thought it was a serviceable uh, serviceable entry into the uh, the arc. It, it sort of touches a little bit on what we just closed with Kamala's Law. Mm. It reminds us that it's still a law. It's still illegal for them to be out vigilanteing. They're just not being hunted anymore. And then they're kind of going into what is what looks like regular champions affair with them targeting a big guy who's picking on little people. Yeah. And I enjoyed this. The the art is still really good. The the writing is fun. The you know, sometimes you get these teenage teams and they're written really not great. <laughs> Because they're written by people who haven't been teenagers in a long time. <laughs> exactly. But I can't think of any examples where this one really rubbed me the wrong way at all. So yeah. I enjoyed it, and I gave it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, no, I, I also really enjoyed this issue. Um, I, I think just because I think there were, even though there there was kind of a lot going on, and, and they're definitely trying to get to this new Roxxon angle, there were some some quieter moments that really had the champions kind of reflect on everything that they went through. And uh, I, I really kind of enjoyed that whole arc of them dealing with Kamala's law. So kind of seeing Ironheart confront the team and, and you know, basically try and figure out, well, how do we go 
you know, from here, given everything that's happened, given especially that Viv was kind of the one that was, um, you know, ratting everyone out. And um, mm-hmm. there's a great scene with, you know, Ironheart and, and um, Miles, and they're kind of just kind of talking and, and relating. And I just, I felt like that was definitely needed, these, these solid moments where you can kind of just, you know, really just let everything out and, and, and talk and reflect on everything that had happened. But, um, you know, I think that, Definitely, definitely on. Uh, definitely going to have some interesting stuff happening soon, especially given that mm. the teaser that we had in issue five, where we saw Miles and Sam uh, basically becoming new interns at Roxxon. So my guess would be that that's probably going to happen next issue, and you know we'll figure out what's really going on with Roxxon and this whole new app. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, was a, it was a pretty solid issue. So I gave this one a 7.25 out of 10. Awesome. And our last lightning review for the day is Black Knight Curse of the Ebony Blade number two by C. Spurrier with art by Sergio Davia with Sean Parsons, color by Arif Prianto and lettering by Corey Petit. Uh, take it away, Brandon, on this one. Absolutely. Uh, so this issue is, is uh, even though there are some dense moments, not a ton happens in the story. Basically, they're dealing with the fallout of the last issue where um, Dane is kind of struggling with the fact that he died and was able to come back to life. And he realizes that's you know a new aspect of carrying the ebony blade that you essentially can't die and so a lot of the issue revolves around um you know dane kind of learning about the the true origins of the ebony blade and the fact that um you know when it was forged it was not forged alone but it was forged with uh, a couple other artifacts um a chalice a a shield and um i believe a staff as well um, basically that could all be used as, as, as weapons potentially to the person that was able to gather them. Um, and all of them would be you know, used as weapons by the Black Knight um, should he want to choose them. But uh, apparently the Black Knight really only chose the sword. Um, and so that's just kind of what he's used as his, his main weapon. Um, and this is all kind of under the, the backdrop of you know, some guy uh, basically going around killing history professors to try and find something, but we're not really sure what it is yet. So um, that all comes in later. But meanwhile, at, at Dane's castle, a mysterious stranger breaks in and, you know, kind of tries to assault Dane and um, basically is trying to figure out what's going on. Why are these historians all being murdered? And uh, this mysterious assailant tracked it to Dane Whitman. And uh, that's when... Um, you know, the assailant basically reveals herself to be Elsa Bloodstone um, and uh, is, <laughs> is you know, kind of on the lookout for, you know, what's going on with the, the deaths of these history professors. And, you know, she's giving Dane a lot of shit because Dane's kind of being patronizing and calling her a chick and everything. And she's not having any of it. And <laughs> they're about to go to blows, but that's when the... Um, history student named Jax, I believe, is basically just, you know, talking about the the origins of the blade and um, how, you know, the other treasures that 
had basically been forged were not lost, but in fact, uh, they were stolen by someone else. And that's when we reveal who the uh, big bad is, who's kind of been going around killing, you know, history professors trying to find something. And uh, we reveal that the big bad is Mordred and he's basically been looking for these artifacts and some kind of attempt to make himself more powerful. Um, so, yeah, no, this issue... Uh, I think was a little bit slower than the first issue just because they spent a lot of time digging into the origins of the ebony blade and the artifacts. Mm -hmm. So it didn't really get a chance to progress the actual story as much as I would have liked. Um, I, I find the lore to be fascinating just because I don't really know that much about Black Knight to begin with. But again, I, I do wish that they'd kind of taken the time to, to progress the story just a little bit more. Um, but, you know, it was nice to see Dane kind of talking about the fact that he died and he used to suffer with that <laughs> and um, seeing him basically just fighting with Elsa Bloodstone was also really entertaining. Um, so there's some, there some really solid moments in this issue. But, um, yeah, overall, I'd say it's a little bit of a drop from the first issue, but still solid nonetheless. So um, I ended up giving this one a 7.5 out of 10. Yeah, I had a good time with this. I liked the, I really liked, I liked the exposition, but it, it was a little dense and it was mm -hmm. a little long, drawn out for compared to what else happens in this issue. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, I, I really didn't like really get into the issue until it was already pretty much over <laughs> with Elsa Bloodstone and Mordred being sort of dropped on us in the end there. Yeah. And I'm kind of excited to see both of those characters hopefully throughout the rest of this series i hope elsa sticks around for a little mm -hmm. bit uh i do enjoy her usually like she's a good time um and i think she could be a really cool supporting character in something that's very arthurian and uh filled with that legacy so i gave Absolutely. this one a 7.25 out of 10 cool all right that's it for our reviews uh so now let's Let's uh, both share our top three and our favorite panel or moment. Uh, do you want to go first, Brandon? Sure. Uh, so at number three, I had a two-way tie between Eternals and Sword. I tried really, really hard. I could not distinguish between the two which one I enjoyed more. They were just phenomenal, and I, I was just like, you know, screw it. You both get number three for this week, so that's how it's got to be. Uh, number two, I had Immortal Hulk. Uh, just another great issue, and if I could have more issues of the sassy, take no shit, uh, Joe Fix It Holt uh, as as a cosmic powerhouse, I would be very, very happy. Um, and at number one, I had Way of X, uh, just such a phenomenal new entry into the Dawn of X. I guess technically now Reign of X titles, um, and and a, a fascinating look at. Cohen culture as well as uh, a really great character study on Nightcrawler so there was just a lot of great stuff there um, and mm -hmm. my favorite moment of the week um, I think I already mentioned but it was that double page spread of Thor basically throwing his hammer into um, the Joe Fixit Cosmic Hulk's face and you could really see like the power behind the throw because his you know his face is just curling upwards and it's just a really beautifully drawn panel um, and I, I just absolutely loved it. Awesome, yeah, it is a really good panel. My top three for this week at third place we had Beta Ray Bill Two, 
which was a great book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I'm really excited to see where it's going to go with them in Muspelheim. At number two, you know, earning its place as always in my top three is this issue of Immortal Hulk, <laughs> number 46. Joe Fix It is great. Cosmic Hulk is great. We we already gushed enough about clobbering the UFOs yeah. and his interactions with Thor. It's just a really good good entry in the book. Um, just yeah, uh, Al Ewing writing some great interactions between Joe Fixit and some characters. I know. I just I could not get over <laughs> quoting Cheers. It was just so <laughs> funny. Where he's just like the people are just running, and I think that's just like such a great background gag as well where like people are running out the door and he just turns to them and he's just like they look real glad i came right <laughs> it's just like oh, oh my god it's just too great yeah oh and the the one panel that really got me was the other cheers reference right before that where he walks in and someone goes oh it's the hulk yeah and he says huh they really do know your name <laughs> like oh he's just like he's so casual about it oh i love it so good and my number one as if it's any surprise is also way of x Mm. just a great launch to a series that i hope is gonna impress me all the way down we get nightcrawler being awesome we get cool creepy moments of krakow in society and what it could mean for things to come and we even get magneto delivering a spontaneous sermon in the middle of a bar (laughs) (laughs) but As always, we read a lot of comics around here, and we don't always read good ones. So, it is now time for... The Biggest Thinker. Oh, that's nasty. Alright, Brandon, what was your your lowest of the low this week? Uh, well, this one probably shouldn't come as a surprise, but my biggest thinker for this week had to be Heroes Reborn, number one. Uh, just, like I said, really disappointing I, I mean actually i don't even know that disappointing is the right word because it's not like i was expecting much from this book um so really it's not like it let me down it was just kind of what i expected it to be kind of you know uninteresting and schlocky and the fact that they were really really leaning into the whole justice league thing but without mm-hmm. any you know cool characterization to match or anything else to add was just it just didn't really do it for me so aside from the visual references to the league, it just fell really flat and, and, and just did not work for me. Yeah, I totally agree. Heroes Reborn also earns my uh, my biggest stinker of the week for the same reasons. I just found it dull and not very interesting. With one caveat being that if the America Chavez retcon is permanent and this mm. is a full retcon... I think I will hold that against this issue and it and I will retroactively award it my biggest stinker oh. for this week. <laughs> but if episode or if issue four or five undoes any part of this retcon and makes it a little easier to swallow, then yeah, Heroes Reborn is the worst one for this week. Yeah, yeah. Oh god, I, I hope I hope that's really not the case. Cause that I just that that retcon that you described, it's just it's so lame. Mm-hmm. It really is, and I, I really hope. I really hope if they are retconning pieces about her past, it's just not this comprehensive. Yeah, yeah. Because, like I said, it's really just now she invented her whole life. Uh. Well, that's the show, everyone. 
Uh, thank you all so much for listening. And remember to go to notarobotpodcast.com for all our episodes and all of our other shows with all sorts of people covering everything you might like. And remember to check out our Patreon. We have tiers starting at just $1 a month that you can use to support us and all the content you love. With that said, as always, there's only one way we say goodbye around here. Be good to each other. And don't be a robot.